Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thanks. I don't get to think too much about Father's Day till I'm done here today, and then we'll, we'll talk about what the rest of the day is going to look like. But um, last, uh, last week, Tyler had a great message uh, dealing with issue of race in our country, and really appreciate him uh, bringing that message. Uh, the weeks before that, I had talked about <clears throat> the idea of freedom. And I wrapped up one of the messages uh, with making a point called freedom from spiritual oppression. And uh, I really feel like God is just continuing to lead us in a direction of dealing with things in that way. I had encouraged you to respond to the message after I had got done talking and to um, ask for prayer. And I hope that you're continuing to stand in those things. We, God wants to bring us into freedom. He wants to liberate us from bondage. He's the one that brings, cap, uh, brings the captives into freedom, like we sang about in that last song today. And I, I hope you're continuing to stand in that. I think uh, the people of God are called to action. They're not called to just observe. They're called to participate and be a part and pray and pursue and everything it takes to continue to advance the kingdom of God, and, and so I want to continue to talk about some things that have been stirring on me. Now, in the weeks ahead, um, some, some things are starting to come together. We're going to hear from uh, Mr. I'll be next week. We'll hear from Corey a couple weeks from now, talking about life by the Spirit. Uh, Mr. G.B. G. B. B. G. Stumberg is going to be sharing the message uh, about three weeks from now. B.G. is the retired pastor from Canyon Ferry Baptist, and he and Lynn have been a great part of our congregation here since they retired from there, and so we're glad to have them. But BG's going to be bringing a message where he sounds like it will possibly be in, in the realm of war in the Spirit through worship, and sharing a story from the Scripture there. And then Mr. Ryan Dalkey will be sharing the message after that. So we've got quite a lineup here for you going over the next uh, five or six weeks, and God has really been orchestrating something behind the scenes. I think it feels like He's putting His finger on things of the Spirit and wanting us to address things in our lives and in the church and continue to pursue Him for breakthrough and those kind of things. So I want to dive into some of that further today. Jason had been talking about the uh, 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 armor of God a few weeks ago, and and so I'm going to kind of start there and remind us and bring us back up to speed with some of these scriptures. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Be strong in who? The Lord, His might. He is mighty, we are not. He is the boss, we are not. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because we're doing this, because this is happening, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Let's pray. Wow, Lord, you have definitely revealed so much to us. God, in revealing what's going on in the Spirit and revealing your point of view of how this all happens. And God, I pray this morning that the power of your Spirit would fill this place. 
Father, that your spirit would fill each one of us. God, I pray that you would lead each one of us as we look at the scripture. We know that as we hear these, these ancient and powerful words from your, from your scripture, Lord, that they do set us free. They do bring about change. They do accomplish your purposes. And so, Lord, as we look at the scripture today, I pray that you would be leading us in breakthrough in our lives. Lord, I pray that every one of us would be tuned in and hearing what you're doing inside of each one of us, Lord, and bringing us revelation. God, I pray that you would guide my words, Lord, as, as I stand up here and talk about these things, Lord. Lead us in it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I think there's a, <clears throat> a lot to be pulled out of these scriptures, and I don't want to um, continue to... Um, do I have power on this? i got to turn this on. I don't want to belabor the point. We've talked about this for several weeks, but we really live in a society and a culture that really makes a, a very deliberate attempt to downplay that there is a, a realm outside of the physical realm. There's a very real concentrated effort, and I want to unpack some of those as a first part of my message today because we have to be convinced that we are engaged in something supernatural. If we don't believe it, then we don't really deal fully with the things God wants us to deal with. If we're wanting to just change in the flesh and not deal with things in a supernatural way, we never really fully have victory. And we live in a situation that, again, is constantly trying to cause us, and I, if I were our enemy, it would be a great strategy to get you to believe that I'm not really here. I'm not really a part of your life. I'm not really doing anything. I'm not trying to influence you. In fact, I'm too busy with bigger, more evil powers in the world than you, and so I'm someplace else. And we've been lulled into this situation of falling asleep to the idea that there is a supernatural realm with an enemy who is aggressive. Now, we can overreact to this situation and put all of our time and all of our energy into glorifying our enemy, which sometimes that is a trap that people find themselves in. But there's also the other end of the spectrum where we completely ignore it and pretend that it's not real. Why do we do that? Why does that stuff creep into our lives, particularly in a Western sort of mindset. Why does it happen? Well, God instructs us to take our stand against a spiritual enemy that we have and his schemes, which tells us what? We have an enemy who is not of flesh and blood, but of the spirit. We talk about this, uh, Halen, way back to the days of Brian Acey, when, when he led the church, he said, your enemy doesn't have a body. And yet all of our energy and all of our time and all of our focus and all of our passion starts to go into this thing where we think that other people are our enemy. And so the way we deal with everything is in the flesh, trying to, whatever it is, fill in the blank. But our enemy doesn't have a body. Our ultimate enemy does not have a body. He's a spiritual force of evil, and whatever forces are with him, we don't know a ton about it, but we do know some things. So we'll unpack that. Flesh and blood is not our primary problem. Jason talked about the armor of God, and, and the armor is metaphorical. It's a picture and so every time you think of the armor of God, I mean, when I was a kid, my cousin Lance had a poster on his wall that had a guy in blue jeans and tennis shoes, kind of like me, but over the top it had, you know, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. It had the breastplate of righteousness on. And every time I think of the armor, I remember that poster. And I think about the armor, but those, armors, those armor, that armor is representative of something else, a principle, an idea, a concept that is supernatural. What is it? The, the helmet of salvation. The breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. What are they? They're not literal things necessarily. They are literal things, but hopefully you hear what I'm saying. It's, it's more, of, more of an abstract thing. 
So when we go into war, we go in with salvation. We go in with faith. We go in with righteousness and a readiness with the gospel and a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are the things by which we arm ourselves and protect ourselves when we're engaging in a supernatural way. Well, how do we, how do we make that? That's got to become practical to us. What does that actually mean in, in, our, in my reality? How do I wield those things? Salvation, righteousness, truth. We wield the truth. The truth is something that we carry into our battle and deal with things in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So these things, this, this faith, this word of God, this gospel, this truth, it, it causes us to destroy strongholds. It has divine power. There is supernatural power in the salvation of Jesus Christ. There's supernatural power in the righteousness that he gave us. When we, when we speak the truth, we're carrying something more than just in the flesh. We're speaking something that transcends all aspects of who we are and the world around us. It goes into the spirit and does something on our behalf. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions. Okay, I know that in this kind of a situation, we're often very much tempted to think about the last argument we had with our spouse or the person that we're around or our brother or our sister or our parents or somebody, oh, they, my, they got a wrong opinion and I'm going to straighten them out on that. I'm going to bring in the Word of God and I'm going to smack them. I'm going to go find my biggest Bible, which is probably this one, and I'm going to straighten them out, boy. And we think that's the way it is. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions, but really behind the scenes, which isn't about flesh and blood necessarily, it's about other concepts other things outside of truth, other things outside of the righteousness of God that we're coming up against. And so how do we, we, we got to deal with things on that level. We've got to raise our vision to see from a big picture, from a supernatural point of view, uh, the situations that we find ourselves in, the arguments that exist in that realm, the opinions that exist in that realm that then manifest in the flesh in other ways. Hope that kind of makes sense. I want to talk about uh, this idea, the word arguments here. We, we, we're not waging war according to the flesh. We destroy arguments. What's Paul talking about? Uh, arguments, uh, logismos, logic is what that word comes from. It's, it's calculated arguments. It's thoughts. It, it, it has an emphasis on personal reasoning. Personal reasoning. So I, in my own state, have gone through a process of reasoning to which I have come a, to a conclusion which is true for me. Does that sound familiar? Relativism is a thing that is growing significantly in our culture. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. It's, it's what comes out of a person's personal reckoning. So I've gone through these experiences and I've gone through this thought process, therefore I've decided what is true. And yet, Paul is saying he, the weapons of our warfare tear down some of those things or bring alignment to those things that we find ourselves speculating on. Thoughts, imaginations, high-minded things, proud obstacle, intellectual arrogance. All of these things are actual Greek uh, translations of the Greek of that word arguments, like this, this intellectual arrogance 
that takes place. And Paul's saying we destroy that. Paul said the gospel is foolishness to those that are perishing. And then he talks about this word that gets translated lofty opinion. Some translations translate it slightly different. The definition of that is a, a height that which something is lifted up. Something that's presumed. It's a barrier or a bulwark. Really, again, with that same emphasis of having been derived from a personal reckoning, I've come to this opinion. And man, if, if we start... Uh, with, with the whole environment of the, the political situations and even the religious situations and even when it comes to theology, um, opinions can start to stink because they're just opinions. They're not necessarily truth. And people will say, this is absolutely true because I've come to this place of personal reckoning about this situation, but does it hold up under the truth of the gospel? Does it hold up to the righteousness and the salvation of Jesus Christ? Is your opinion more powerful than God's truth? Is your opinion meant to destroy other people's lives, to criticize, to judge? There is really this movement in our society that we as Christians need to be very, very aware of, that there, we are putting more emphasis in the personal power to formulate an opinion than in the actual truth that comes from the Word of God. And it's a strategy of the enemy. That's where our war takes place. Behind the scenes, here's this thing. This enemy pushing on us to, I want you to be divided. I want you to be angry. I want you to hurt one another. Therefore, I'm going to cause you to come to this point where you are God and he's not, and your opinion is bigger than his. And it's a really destructive force in our society where we as individuals, it's easy to point at everybody else about that, but we got to stop and look at ourselves and go, where am I at fault in this? How am I contributing to this division? How am I contributing to the anger? How am I contributing to the, the hate? Because I've elevated something. And yet Paul's saying, our, the weapons of our warfare are designed to destroy that attitude, destroy those mindsets, and bring ourselves in alignment with what? Righteousness, faith, the Word of God, truth, the gospel, all those things those armors represent. So there was a period of time called the Enlightenment. You ever heard of the Enlightenment? Okay, we're going to talk practically here. Why is this such a thing for us? Well, I hope to just sort of peel back a layer to, to help us see and understand maybe why we are the way we are, why we think the way we think. You know how most of us, when we turn on our computer, hopefully it works, and we have Windows or we have whatever the Mac software is, and it just runs in the background, and it makes all of our stuff work, and we don't have any idea how it works, how, I mean, those people that figure that stuff out, I mean, I don't know. Right? But there's this operating system going on behind the scenes in your computer, and it just makes stuff work, right? But we don't know. But if, but if you start studying it and you start diving into it, you start to learn what's going on in that noisy little box under your desk. It's an operating system. It's a mode of operation. Well, we have the same thing in our minds. We, it, because of what we've grown up in, because of what we've been educated with, because of the environment we live in, uh, we have this this background process going on in the way we analyze things, the way we come to decisions, the way we decide what is good and what is bad and what is right and wrong. And not necessarily all those things are good. It's one of the things if you start to travel all over the world and you start to find yourself in very, very different cultures, it is almost frustrating. I mean, it's like trying to switch from a Windows to a Mac, right? It's like, why do you do this this way? So when, like, for those of us that have worked in South Africa, you go there and you look at some of the things and you're just like, why? 
And to us, it's backwards, and to them, it's totally normal. And of course, we think we're right, right? Americans think they're right. We're going to come in and Americanize your culture because it's right, right? No, it's, it's only right because we've been raised with this background operating system that tells us this is how decisions are made. This is how things should work. And it's really, really challenging. But we do the same thing in our Christianity. We have a lot of things that are informing our decisions that aren't godly. Okay, what was the enlightenment? I can't cover the enlightenment in any reasonable amount of time, so we're just going to talk very briefly about it. But back in the 16th century, shortly after the Reformation, I mean, the world started to, to... unravel in the way that it operated. In those days, you would not find someone that didn't believe in a God. There had to be a superior designer of the universe. And actually, that's true today. Something like 90% of the people still believe there's got to be something else. But what started to happen in those days is science started to advance. And these guys were, most of these guys were Christian guys in the sense that they participated in a church community, uh, those kind of things in those days. We don't necessarily know the specifics of each one. People like Isaac Newton, where they, they, start, to, they start to unpack um, all the science and start to define these things, like gravity and, and the universe, and, and all of a sudden they start having these big breakthroughs. And rationalism started to take hold in the world. What is rationalism? <clears throat> rationalism is... Is, is the idea that knowledge can be ca- gained independently of experience. So they started studying these things that they didn't necessarily know, and they started to have these scientific breakthroughs, and really very beneficial. Glad we found out about gravity, you know, things like that. We found out that the world, the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. Actually, that created a huge problem for the church. And for many years, the church denied that. They... they uh, condemned people like Galileo. Galileo and all his discoveries ultimately recanted all of them because he was under persecution from the church. Because at the time, they couldn't figure out how to resolve those things with the Scripture. But it's when apologetics started to develop. Apologetics, this idea of being able to defend the truthfulness of Scripture. Okay, so what happens? Rationalism, this idea that we can think our way to truth. That we can think our way to truth, that that we can seek which can be known without even experiencing it. Okay, so if, if we bring this into the realm of God, if I can't see God, if I can't imagine God and I've had no experience with God, and so I just try in my mind to bring evidence to Him, I, I come to this conclusion that there must not be God. It, there was another movement at the time called empiricism. You heard the word empirical evidence, right? If I can measure it, if I can show you the data... And so they they would study things, and they would gain data from those things, and then they would develop theories, and science started to explode and advance. Because people, I mean, we take that for granted today. We we are raised in in a system where we study and we educate ourselves, and if we can't prove something scientifically or rationally, then it must not exist. And so we've got to realize that what's been ingrained in us over hundreds of years is this idea that this is God. This decides what is real. This decides what is authoritative. This being my mind. If I can't see it or I can't rationalize it, if I can't measure it empirically or I can't rationalize it in my mind, it must not exist. So we're in a society now that I am God, I decide. The Word of God is not the truth unless I can rationalize it. Do you see what happens here? My opinion, my logic, my calculative reasoning, 
or the evidence that I've seen of bad things on the earth disprove the idea that God exists. Now, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, but these are the things that you've got to realize we all do as Christians. They're ingrained in our thought processes. And we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I God or is He God? Did He give us the truth? Did He give us His word or not? And so through the ages, this, that enlightenment, which has brought us so many good things, led to an anti-supernaturalism. Miracles are contrary to the laws of nature, therefore they cannot exist. I think we've all heard this many times, that in, in parts of the world where, like India or uh, Africa, they actually see a significant larger number of miracles that we're aware of. Why? Because they're possible there, but here they're impossible, because we think they're impossible. Because rationally it contradicts the laws of nature that a God could intervene with those things and change them. That He could heal me. That He could transform my soul. That He could bring salvation. That doesn't line up with my logic and my logic is God so therefore those cannot be true. Do you realize that's all spiritual warfare? That's all something that has set itself up against the knowledge of God underneath the surface and is warring against our souls, wanting mastery over us, wanting us to give a, a wrong authority to the wrong thing, particularly our minds. So miracles con are contrary to the laws of nature, therefore they can't exist. Things like prayer, special revelation, personal relationship with God are nonsensical. Again, all of this in the foundation of our society and our Western thinking, which is influencing you, I guarantee it. It's influencing all of us all the time. It's a quiet thing under the surface, a strategy to dethrone God and make you God. You know, as, as, it's interesting that as t uh, if you look through time and you see that big change from the Enlightenment on, uh, it's not very often that man had a problem making himself God before then. Isn't it interesting that when you study the end times and look at all the different lists that they talk about, about man becoming a lover of himself, Man elevating himself above God, all those kinds of things. Isn't it interesting that we, we shouldn't be surprised that that is the case, that man seeks to put himself in the place of God, particularly now with the rationalism, the empiricism, and those kind of things that drive our thinking. Those aren't inadvertently wrong, it's just that we have to hold them up to the truth. What is, who is the source of truth? Who is truth? God himself. So we have to hold things up to that. Anyway, all of that to say, do not be tempted to believe that you don't have an enemy. Do not be tempted to believe that there isn't a supernatural realm. Do not be tempted to believe that God doesn't hear your prayer. Because logic tells you He can't hear you. Because we can only hear, all we can see is that we can only hear from one place. Don't believe, don't be tempted to believe that God doesn't do miracles today. He does. He moves in power on behalf of His people. But we need to realize this is where our war takes place. That is where the confrontation is significantly. And so we need to recognize that as one of the strategies of our enemy. We talked about the sword of the Spirit a little bit, and we spent the first three or four months um, of the year talking about the authority of the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. So that sword of the Spirit, it's the sword in the Spirit. 
In the spirit realm and by the Holy Spirit, there is a weapon called the Word of God. Now, I just kind of nerded out this week and went and studied swords a little bit and some sword fighting techniques, and I wanted to demonstrate them for you today, but that would be way too entertaining. So the sword is an interesting thing. We used it to defend, and we use it to take ground for offense and defense as well, and we need to learn to wield it well because it's useful at times, or you can cut yourself really badly. I found myself wondering how many of these old soldiers accidentally have big old scars on their legs or arms from their own sword. I mean, when you watch Star Wars with the lightsabers where it just burns through stuff, it's like, no way, I would have hurt myself so fast with one of those. You have a sword in the Spirit called the Word of God. So if you're wanting to deal with something uh, beyond, (laughs) you go to the Word. What does it say? What is the truth? What is the truth about salvation? What is the truth about righteousness? What is the truth about any situation? What is the gospel? All of those things are found in the Word of God. So you need to wield it. So we have defensive moves when something comes at us. Let's consider Jesus when he was in the desert being tempted in the wilderness. We've studied this before, so I don't want to go way into depth on it, but what does he use to combat the attacks of Satan who's trying to cause him to be tempted? He uses the Word of God. He wields it like a sword. This attack comes at him, he blocks it. Now, there's a couple things that people make mistakes with with swords, literally with swords. They overexpose themselves. Actually, in Montana, we probably have a better idea of what a haymaker is. You know what a haymaker punch is? It's where you wind up way back here and just let her fly like the old westerns, right? But if you've ever really been in a fist fight, those don't work. You need short, quick jabs, right? You can't can't expose yourself like that. We do that with swords, too. People with swords tend to fight like this. And I just showed you all my belly, too, when I did that, didn't I? <laughs> we, we really get these big old, and we expose ourselves. And we're going to do this massive damage because I'm tough and strong and smart. And, uh, but really, we're called to wield it with, I think, an elegance and a sensitivity, a finesse to work into the spots that it needs to go. Not with our big, arrogant swings where we just expose ourselves but with quick, intelligent moves. That's how we deal with things. Oftentimes, people, when they're first given a sword and they're in a fight, their tendency is to want to go like this and jab, and they expose themselves. They're just like, I'm going to take some ground because I'm... They're almost like overconfident, over-arrogant, unsophisticated moves. And I think when it comes to the Word of God, we have to know how to wield it well. Because when something comes at us and we just go, rawr, I'm tough, don't attempt, you know, overreact, overdo things. And we expose ourselves. It's one of the things that I think is really fueling the division in our society is the immediate defensive angry lash. I'm going to straighten you out. Exposed. Instantly. Place for the enemy to hit you right there. What about losing our witness with the people around us because we're right? I'm going to angrily hurt you, and I'm going to destroy your argument and destroy your opinion because mine are right. I'm going to cause division, and that's okay with God, I think. I'm going to hurt your feelings. I'm going to condemn you and judge you because that's what the truth is. Is that what God has called us to? Is that a right use of his word? I don't think so. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. This thing is supernatural. It goes beyond us, and it goes beyond the generations. We need to be wise about how we handle things. 
There's a story in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21. I'll read you the whole story, but it's an interesting moment. It's just to give you an example of Jesus engaging with the Spirit in a surprising moment. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside to rebuke him. Do you ever rebuke God? We probably have on accident from time to time. But Peter did some pretty, I'm glad Peter did some things to help the rest of us feel better about some of the things that we've done. (laughs) What does he do? He rebukes Jesus. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus was preaching the truth, and Peter rebukes him. Jesus was saying, something bad's going to happen to me. I'm going to go and be crucified. And Peter's like, "Uh uh-uh, I rebuke that. Speak blessings, not cursings, Jesus. And he rebukes him. And, And what does Jesus say? But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Was he calling Peter Satan? I don't think so. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What was the mistake that Peter made? Jesus was bringing the truth. Peter didn't like it. He rebukes Jesus for it, and Jesus speaks to the thing behind Peter, Satan, and says, you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. Such a great lesson for you and I today. Do we have the things of God in mind, particularly when we're throwing up our lofty opinions and rebuking everybody around us in our advancement of the gospel? Are we? Are we really advancing the gospel with that thing? Peter wasn't. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes Satan, who was even behind him. Poor Peter. Let's see. Now let's read another story. I'm going to turn in Acts chapter 19. I don't have it in my notes, but I wanted to share the story with you. Um, I don't know there's a lot of cohesiveness on my thoughts today. I just have these different things I want to share with you about things of the Spirit. Why? Because I want you to be motivated to deal with the fact that there is a supernatural that we are to be engaged in and how we do that. What are some of the practical things in that? This is uh, Acts chapter 19, verse 11, the sons of Siva. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Perhaps you've seen that on, like, televangelist stuff and wonder, why in the world, where did this handkerchief thing come from where if I send 50 bucks, they're going to send me this blessed handkerchief to heal me? Right, where did that come from? Well, it actually comes from an actual story in the Scripture. But isn't it interesting, let's just do a little study on that particular situation for a second. Whenever, when anyone ever talks about an item like that being blessed and taken to someone and them being healed, we all, I shouldn't speak for us all, I guess, but I roll my eyes. My immediate response is like, them televangelists, that stuff, nonsense, blah, 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 right? And yet I realize in the moment that I have been duped into believing that something that happened in the Scripture didn't actually happen. What did the enemy succeed in doing? He succeeded in undervaluing something that was true in my mind because there was a bad example of it. And so by empirical evidence and by my observations, I decided that 
God doesn't do that. And yet God says, yes, I do. I do do that. I do heal. And I do weird things sometimes. And I'm like, okay. Don't let the enemy go, yeah, but. What is the ultimate truth? The weapons of world warfare are not carnal. They destroy those lofty arguments of our enemy that disrupts us. Okay, anyway. Then some of the itinerant Jews, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Okay, so what's going on? Exorcism is a thing. It's very real in most of the rest of the world. Again, we can go back to this whole logic, reasoning, empirical evidence, and America doesn't believe it. But it's very real, and it has been throughout the ages. And these Jewish guys are trying to exorcise demonic forces that are involved in people's lives. And so they realize that Paul is actually having a lot of success with it, so they start using it. In the name of Jesus, of whom that guy Paul preaches about, they, re- they try to lay hold of the authority of Christ to get the, these demons to come out of people. I mean, hey, if you were desperate, what would you do? You're really trying to get rid of this evil spirit that someone's dealing with? It's like, hey, it's working for Paul. And so they just approach it in a very, I don't know, logical way. It just makes sense. We'll, we'll, we'll implore this name of this Jesus that Paul's talking about, and maybe it will work. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Wait, all my logic just kicked in. Evil spirits talk? Talk through somebody? What? Wait, that doesn't, that, oh, that can't be true. It doesn't stand up to rationalism, right? Or is it? Or is it? You see what, ah, this is how this goes. Have we been lulled to sleep with the idea that this stuff is not real? It is, in fact, quite real. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, wow, <laughs> and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? I mean, what kind of a bad day do you have as a Jewish exorcist to get insulted by a demon, right? <laughs> Jesus I know and Paul I heard of, who are you? Smart guy. What happened? And the man in whom, the evil, in whom was the evil spirit, wait, an evil spirit can be in a man? That doesn't line up to my reasoning. Must not be true. Of course it's true. And the, man who was, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. How many was there? Seven of them. Must have made him powerful somehow. So that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Double humiliation. Not only did you get teased by a demon, you got whooped up on and you had to leave naked and bleeding. Okay, what, what, what do we draw from this? There is an interaction, interaction in the Spirit, but we can also draw some things off of the mistakes that these guys made. Okay, first of all, we know that the authority, Jesus Christ does have the authority. He is the authoritative figure, and they tried laying hold of that authority without really being in Christ. They, didn't, they hadn't submitted their lives to Jesus. They just called out on Jesus' name for the convenience of their situation. They weren't actually submitted to Him. He wasn't their God. They might have been after that. We don't know. I think it's important for us to realize that when we're dealing with supernatural things, we can't just be fair-weather Christians. 
just decide to be a Christian when it's convenient for us or when we're in need, but that we actually submit our lives to Christ on a daily basis. See, when we pray in the name of Jesus, that, that is not, they, they, we talk about this, I've talked about this many times, they're not magic words just in the words. It's powerful because you are in the name of Jesus, because you're wielding an authority. I come in the authority of the King, and I have that authority because I am one of His children. I have been adopted into His family. That's why I can pray in the name of Jesus. That's why it has power. But if I'm outside of Christ and try and wield that power, there isn't anything there. Jesus I know and Paul I heard of. Who are you? You who is not really connected to the one who has authority. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Why? In His authority, in His name. All right, well, I'm not even going to get halfway through today. I'm going to share one last story with you, and we're going to wrap it up. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Again, Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Oh, man. I guess we could probably talk another hour. Like, what, does, what are the implications of this verse? What does this tell us about what goes on in the Spirit? We know in the book of Job that Satan himself stood before God. And God said, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming back and forth on the earth. You know, we don't know what's going on very much outside of here. But we do have some things that God has given us. So what, what is this leading up to? He goes on to Satan, or Satan, <laughs> Should not call Simon Satan, probably. Um, Simon uh, says, yeah, that'll never happen. And Jesus goes, but for the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. The famous story of Peter denying Christ. What happened in the moment? Peter was under the pressure. Jesus was being tried. And they're like, oh, you're one of his disciples. And he says, oh, I don't know him. I don't know him. I, didn't know, I don't know. What does he do? He denies Christ. He protects himself. Big, big deal. Sometimes we read that story and it's like, gosh, was it that big of a deal? I mean, I have weak moments, times when I don't stand for what I believe, times where under pressure from others I might not say what I should or do what I should. Well, it was taken quite seriously. It was a tactic of Satan to destroy Peter, to cause him to deny Christ, to cause him to shrink back from the moment, and he did. And then Jesus restores him after his resurrection. He says, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Three times he does. It's like three times he denied. Three times Jesus asks him. And then Peter says, Lord, you, I mean, Peter was hurt. But he restored him. And, of course, Peter became a very powerful figure in church history. All right, I'm just going to go ahead. Because I don't want to leave us in a moment of, see, I had plenty to go through there, didn't I? All right. Oops, I went back too far. John chapter 16, verse 33. We'll end with the words of Jesus. Would you stand, please? We're going to have a prayer team over here on my left after the service that will be available to pray for you. We're going to start out with social distancing. If, if you'd like to receive prayer, you can approach that team. Uh, they will ask you if you're comfortable being closer or not. They will pray with you regardless. And I would encourage you to do so. Uh, we, we were talking about spiritual freedom a few weeks ago, and we've kind of 
scratch the surface on spiritual things, but if you'd like to receive some prayer today, I would encourage you to do so. But I don't want to leave us on a sort of a despairing and fearful note. I want us to leave with John 16, 33, which were Jesus' words. I have said these things to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So all of these things, we can, we can get fearful of our enemy, we can get weird about it, but the reality is that Jesus has overcome. He is the one with the authority. He wants us to have peace. We're going to have trouble, but he leaves us his peace, and in that we take hold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for your word that brings so much revelation to us about who you are and, and your ways and even how things work outside of our understanding. Lord, we are not God. Our mind is not God. Our rationale, our empirical evidence, they're not God. In fact, I, I feel like they've more and more led us to you. God, you are a mystery, and there are mysterious things that we don't understand. And so, Father, we submit ourselves to you. God, help us to not be the one on the throne in our lives. Lord, help us to put you in your rightful place as king in every aspect of our lives, in all of the things we're dealing with. Father, I pray for each one that you guide them, Lord, that you be bringing revelation to them. Lord, that as they ponder these words and what really is going on, Lord, that, that you would be just bringing quick thoughts and, and pointing out things in their minds and hearts, Lord, about where you're at work or how to deal with things, Lord, that are going on in their lives. Lord, I pray you bless each one in Jesus' name. Amen.